Well, my name is Ken, and I'm one of the elders at West Village Church, and it's my privilege today to bring to you the Word of God. So it's so good to gather to worship at the gathering, to worship our Lord Jesus. And I know he's in our midst. Do you know, do you know how I know that? Well, simply the Bible tells me so. Look at Matthew 18, 20. Uh, he says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And so here we are together at the gathering. Um, today we'll continue to examine the Gospel of Matthew. We've been working through our way through that Gospel for a fairly long time since past June 2009. Uh, sorry, 2019. At least that's what the archives at West Village say, but I think it was even probably before Matt, one of our elders, and even uh, Andrew were even born, it looks like. <laughs> so I now invite you to open up your Bibles or maybe your Bible app and um, go to Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13 is what we're going to read. And if you don't have a Bible, in, on the table in front of me, there are some Bibles that you can borrow, you can use, you can take home to use, and then you can just follow with me. So I'm going to read those 13 verses, and then we'll take it from there. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy, and they fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell the oil and buy some for yourselves. And But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So just bow down with, in prayer with me. Father, through your Holy Spirit, teach each one of us today what these verses mean to us. We do not want to simply read or hear the words, but we want to allow your word to deeply, deeply impact our hearts and change our lives so that as, our, as your children, we may live in obedience to you and bring glory to the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his holy name we pray. So, in a way, I, I suppose if you reflect on those 13 verses, we can safely ask the question, are we ready? And we're talking about the second coming. Are we ready? Or have we checked our oil lately? Or do we know the fate of those that are unprepared for that event that will occur in time? The date and the hour is not known to us. As we begin, I just want to recap our journey through Matthew's Gospel. Uh, remember, it has five discourses. And the first one is in chapter 5 to 7, which of course we all know is that wonderful Sermon on the Mount. Now, discourse number 2 is contained in chapter number 10, and that's called the Missionary Gospel, uh, the Missionary Commission or the Little Commission. Here there are 12 disciples, they're given instructions to go on mission, how to travel, carry no belongings, preach only to the Jews, and so on. The third discourse is contained in chapter 13, verses 1 to 53. That's also called the parabolic discourse. It includes the parables about the kingdom of heaven, the stories of the sower, the tares, the mustard seed, the leaven, hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, and drawing in the net. And discourse number four in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, it includes those famous parables of the lost sheep and the unforgiving servant, which also refer to the kingdom of heaven and the future community, which is the church like us, and the role of the apostles in it. And finally, discourse number five, where we are landing today, is contained in chapters 24 and 25, 
this is the final discourse uh, that we began only a few Sundays ago. Now, theologians call it the Olivet Discourse. If you recall, in chapter 23, Jesus had had some hard conversations with the Pharisees and the synagogue leaders, where he has um, confronted them about judgment, and also with the seven woe to you statements, and he, he even called them snakes and a brood of vipers. Now, after that heated exchange, of course, you can find Jesus with his team. They start taking the road from Jerusalem, go eastward to Bethany. And along the path there, there's this Mount of Olives. And they're sitting down there. And of course, at this time, our friends are a little bit confused because Jesus has been talking about the end times. He's making all these statements about what's going to happen. And right now, they've been partying with him, eating, drinking, whatever, right? And they were thinking very with, with confused states of mind. How can this happen? We're having such a good time. And that could happen to us, right? We could not believe some of the signs that go on around us. And so he's sitting down there answering some of the questions to give them so more information about the end times. Now, in the past few weeks, we've examined chapter 24. And I know last week, I think Andrew examined the first of the four parables in this Olivet Discourse. The chapter 24, verses 42, 42 to 44, they covered the theme of being watchful. And moving on from there, verses 45 to 51, Jesus pointed to the theme of being faithful in the story of this faithful and wise servant. Now, he was given control of the business to take care of the business and feed the servants. And for, for that, when the master came home, he was rewarded. But the wicked one, the, the parable said, was not he treated them unfairly, and when the master found out, of course, he punished them. So today, we're going to examine the first of the three parables that are left in chapter 25. Uh, this one that we've just read is called the parable of the ten virgins. The theme contained in this one is that of being prepared, being ready, um, and being watchful for the return of the Son of Man. And that day or hour is unknown. It's not if it'll happen, it's when, would, when will it happen. So let me start with a short story. Now, perhaps many of you were not born then, but in 1990, the actor Paul Hogan, if you remember him, he was playing the character of Mick Dundee in the Crocodile Dundee series. That gross, <laughs> somebody remembers. And <laughs> that movie grossed about over half a billion US dollars. Uh, so he was quite famous. So. Uh, he starred in the movie called Almost an Angel, and he played the character of a guy by the name of Terry Dean. Now, Terry was an electronics wizard, kind of like our techie guys up there, right? But he was a thief. Now, after being released from jail, he gets knocked down by a car in the act of saving a child's life, right? So when he comes up to the afterlife and he stands before God, God's standing there and telling him, you aren't very religious, are you? And he replies, I was planning to get very religious just before I died. And the problem, of course, is that he died unexpectedly without time to put the plan that he had into effect. He was not ready. So this parable we just read is intended to teach us about the suddenness and the unexpectedness of the coming of the Lord. It calls for us to be prepared and ready for that unknown moment. It also emphasizes a division between those that are ready and prepared and those that are not. So R.T. France, who's a Bible scholar and commentator, he writes, the parable helps the disciples understand what it means to await the king's return with prudence. I'm not so sure it's at the back there. Anyway, the point is simply that readiness, whatever form it takes, is not something that can be achieved by a last-minute adjustment. It depends on long-term provision. And if that has been made, the wise disciple can sleep secure in the knowledge that everything is ready. So now let's examine the parable. Verse by verse, we'll kind of unravel what the Lord is saying to me and to you. Uh, hopefully, so that we can understand the message. 
So verse 1 reads, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So what's the subject of this particular verse? Okay, When used in the Bible, the conjunction then essentially points to a, a period of time, a particular time. And then here it refers to the unknown time that Jesus will return as the Son of Man. He was encouraging his disciples and also his church, which is all of us, right, to be ready and to be prepared for his second coming. This is when Christ unexpectedly arrives and then he is going to reward those that are righteous and those that are not will be judged, right? The, it's a simple story, really, when you, and it's based around a wedding feast, right? Um, there's an invitation to a wedding for those that are ready, they enter the feast with the bridegroom and his party, and those that are not ready, they're simply left out because the door is shut. Now, many people, and Bible commentators have, have mentioned uh, or have diverse opinions about this, and they, they turn this into an allegory, giving it a mystical meaning, right? They put too much into it about a secret spiritual application, but let's stick with the simplicity of it for a moment. Um, there's no need to debate about what dresses were the bridegrooms, uh, bride, uh, bridesmaids wearing, right? Where did they sleep at, in, at, at just before midnight, right? Um, what did they, um, which house did they hang out at, right? But we need to just set those aside and say, Jesus, Lord, this is your word. What are you talking to us about? What do I need to take from here? So to better understand this, there are four segments or four sections. First is the actual wedding itself, and we'll break that down. Then we're talking about the bridesmaid themselves. Note the word bride is not even mentioned in this parable, right? It's not that it is insignificant. It's just that it's not relevant at this point when the story that Jesus gives us. Thirdly, the bridegroom himself. And fourthly, the most important thing of all is the warning that he's giving us, right? So let's look at the wedding itself. Like all weddings, it's a time for celebration. It's an event, a great social event, a life event for the, for the couple. So it's a very special moment in time. Perhaps the town or the village was small. And unlikely in that village, everybody knew one another. So whenever there was a wedding party, well, everybody was invited, right? So family, friends, neighbors, they would have all joined to come in and make fun, make a, enjoy the fun at the festivities. Firstly, let's take about, talk about the process in those days. So um, a traditional Jewish wedding. And I thought, you know, I think someone suggested that, look, I should use something cultural to me because, as you know, the, um, the sunblock didn't work, so I am brown. And so, uh, you know, my frame of reference in India is a different way of describing the, pre- pre- uh, the preparation for a wedding. People come on white horses with a lot of garlands, they throw flowers in the path and stuff like that. But I want to just stick to the culture of the day that Jesus is referring to, which is the Jewish culture. And the Jewish wedding had three elements. The first one was the actual engagement. So this was based on the fathers, two fathers making a contract. Hey, I have a son, you have a daughter, right? Let's get them married, right? Um, In those days, this was a great arrangement to have concerning marriages. Unlike what we see in our culture today, the parents choosing prospective spouses portrayed a long-term commitment. For young people, let your parents decide for you. That's good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the parents choosing prospective spouses, they portrayed a long-term commitment. And so the chance of someone dumping a spouse was quite remote in those days. Wives were taken care of and not abandoned. The engagement was binding, and all the preparation and investment in marriage, right, led to a fulfillment in that marriage. Not something that we see in our day, in our culture today, do we, right? It's easy to just walk out of a, of a marriage. It's easy to say, I'm fed up, you know, I'm out of here, right? The second one was the actual, the second element is the actual betrothal ceremony. So in the presence of close family and friends as witnesses, the couple, they made binding vows and were considered officially married. After this, the young men had about a year or some period of time that their parents determined to allow him to prepare 
for the responsibility of having a wife. Yes, guys, wake up. It is a responsibility to have a wife, right? So learn that today. If anything at all, if you're young, you're getting married as a guy, focus on this important thing, is that I'm a guy and I have a wife that God has given me and it's my responsibility to make sure I take care of her and be the husband that Jesus is to, to the church, his bride, right? So the idea was that um, he could probably have that time to, to buy a plot of land, to build a house. He could build an extension to his dad's home, maybe, to live in. He could use the land to cultivate a field. He could learn a trade in that time, or maybe train for a career. And the whole idea was to provide a place to live, to make a living, to make a home, and provide enough of finances to look after his bride and his family. So it was kind of an important event, right, during this betrothal period. And of, like all weddings, of course, there's this period of anticipation um, that there's always that time of planning and anticipation regarding the event, the nervousness, is the photographer here? You know, how much does it cost? The anxiety and the excitement. And you can talk to, I don't know if William and Corina are here in the group today, but they are a young couple that are new to West Village. And on September 25th next month, they are going out east to Toronto, uh, to Ontario to get married. So they can understand all the, the stuff that goes in to have this wedding arranged, right? Now, the celebration in those days started with the bridegroom and all his entourage of groomsmen. Um, they come to the bride's house where she and her bridesmaids would be waiting. The entire party would then go through the village at night with torches lit, and they were singing, dancing, uh, talking, making a joyful noise, after all, the bridegroom was leading his bride to their new home. Kind of an exciting event, right? The parties usually lasted a week, if not more. Those parties were good parties, I would imagine, right? Now, the next element is, uh, the next section is the, uh, the bridesmaids and what they mean in this story. Now, verses 2 to 4, five of them were foolish, excuse me, And five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Let's break verse, down, verse two down a little bit. So Jesus splits the group into two. Five, five wise, five foolish. Um, not a huge significance here, except for the fact that we will see the crisis of not having the oil that will divide those that are ready and those that are not in a minute. Verse 3, the question is, why were they foolish? And the answer is provided very clearly. They took no oil with them. All of them were waiting at that house. They were ready with the bride, um, for coming for the bridegroom um, to arrive at some point. Some had the right supplies and were actually prepared for this event. Some were not. That's life today. That happens for the best of us. Yeah, we could always say that applies to us, really. I mean, we are, some of us are ready, some maybe not, right? So let's talk about the supplies for a moment. And the supplies, the first supply was a torch. Now, in those days, whenever there was, they were celebrating an important social event, right? Be it a wedding or maybe a visiting dignitary that arrived, then what would happen is it was a custom for designated people to carry these torches that would burn brightly and give light. It may have been a long wooden pole with a wire mesh around it and, you know, wrapped with cloth. So when you douse it with oil, um, it would burn brightly, right, in the night. But it was not the lamp that Jesus talked about in Matthew 5.15, where he talks about a little lamp that you can hide under a bushel, right? And it was more like the torch of what Jesus says in John, um, sorry, what John says in, in uh, John 18.3. The soldiers used that torch for brightness when they came to the Garden of Gethsemane when they arrested Jesus. The second item as a supply was the flask. And in verse 4 we are told that for those who were really prepared for the party, they had a little flask 
What did it contain? It had a backup reserve supply of oil. And they used that to light the torch itself and so that it would burn as long as it was needed, right? Um, from at least from the time that the, uh, the bridegroom took her from the bride's home back to his home, right? Whatever that time was. So it, it was important to be ready and pre be prepared to join that procession with the torch that was bright. So to connect this to our living today, what good is it uh, for us to have a torch but not have the flask of oil we need to light when the Lord returns? We may sit here, we've heard about Jesus, right? And there are people out in the world who have also heard about him, right? But has he really taken his place in our hearts as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves, right? Where is that flask? Is it full? Is it half full? Is it empty, right? To make this point, I just want to read you a story of the Welsh Methodist preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He pastored Westminster Bible Chapel in London for about 29 years. And in the late 1930s, he came to Toronto for a summer to fill, fill in for a pastor at a great Baptist church for three months while this guy was going away on sabbatical, I suppose. But, uh, so Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached his first sermon, and the pastor he was filling for led the service that day. Now, churches in Toronto in these old days had two Sunday services, one in the morning, one in the evening. And then Dr. Lloyd-Jones announced one day that each Sunday he would be preaching two different sermons. In the morning, he said, he would be preaching to build up Christians in their faith. And in the evening, he would be preaching evangelistic sermons aimed at helping those who had not yet found faith at a personal level in Jesus Christ and had not put their trust in him. So there were people that came for the fun of it, some people that just didn't care and didn't know, right? So he was going to deal with that. So after the service, the two pastors greeted the people as they left the church. A particularly well-dressed woman approached, and the pastor whispered into Lloyd-Jones's ear, that lady is a pillar of this congregation. She's been attending here for years, and a finer Christian you're never likely to meet. That's all of us, right? But he was in for a surprise. The woman shook Lloyd-Jones's hand and said, did I understand you correctly that you intend to preach in the mornings on the assumption that you're speaking to Christians and in the evenings on the assumption that you are speaking to people who are not yet converted to Christ? And when Lloyd-Jones confirmed that this was his intention, she said, well, having heard you this morning, I will come again tonight. She had never attended the evening service before, only the morning. She came every week, every morning and evening during Lloyd, uh, Lloyd Jones's time in that church. She later admitted to him in a private conversation that although she had never, uh, although she outwardly looked like a fine church goer, inwardly she was desperately hungry and <clears throat> she had never discovered a personal relationship with God. Everyone assumed that since she had been coming to the church for years, she had oil in her lamp. But in fact, she was empty on the inside, and the good news was that she was willing to admit it to somebody that she could trust, right? So I hope this story resonates with you as it does with me, because remember, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? And the beauty of this is that God has not left us hanging, he has given us his Holy Spirit uh, who empowers us to do that because we believe in Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. So if we are hungry and need a personal relationship with Jesus, it is he, the Spirit of God, who points us to Jesus. It is he who will fill our flask with oil to allow us to be prepared and be ready for whenever Jesus decides to show up again. So now let's take a, uh, let's take a look at three things concerning the status of the ten virgins, okay? The first one is the social aspect to who these virgins are, right? Firstly, they were selected. They were unmarried young girls, and they may have been sisters or cousins of, or the best friends of this bride. 
And they looked forward to celebrating this event in the life of their friend, right? An exciting time for all of them. Now think of Jesus as the, being the bridegroom. He calls us to be his bride. So he willingly, sacrificially, and joyfully laid down his life for his bride. He redeemed us and he invited us to the wedding feast of the Lamb after he returns. He promised us that he will, part, that he will partake, that we will partake rather in the marriage supper of the Lamb when we are taken to our Father's house. We've all been selected. We've all been invited. His desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life, provided we believe in what he has done for us on the cross. There is always that caveat, right? There's nothing that we can do to generate a salvation on our own. It's God's free gift to us. We've got to receive that gift, right? What is the significance of the, the label given to them as virgins? The, their virginity was not symbolic of any, uh, any spiritual state at all. Generally, in the culture and tradition uh, of that time, the bridesmaids were young. They were usually virgins. And Jesus does not imply any moral status when he called these girls virgins. As I said before, everyone is invited to come to that wedding feast. His grace extends to all of humanity. No one is excluded. Remember, he says he loves us. And in John 3:16 and 17, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will have everlasting life. And he did not send his son to condemn us. He came to save us through him. Right? And why ten virgins? Well, it's just a number that Jesus uses. Right? The sum of that number is, is ten. It was also customary in those days for the Jews. Um, for example, if you had a proper blessing to be given at the wedding, it was ten guys that had to be there. And also ten Jewish guys would constitute what they call a synagogue, right? So nothing particularly relevant about it. The, let's talk about the spiritual condition of these virgins. What was the outward appearance, right? Um, Jesus was referring to, when he spoke about this, was they were all part of the bride's team, right? The wise and the foolish. It's obvious that Jesus was referring to us as well, in this story that he points to us, professing Christians who are part of the church. We may confess we know Christ. We anticipate he will return. Even say we are prepared for him. And we are ready, um, waiting for him, and, and wearing those wedding garments and, and carrying our torches and so on. Sure, our presence in the gathering may portray um, our interest in Jesus Christ. Right? And our torches, they symbolize our profession of faith in him. But like the bridesmaids, we show outwardly the marks of watching for his coming uh, to be received into that wedding feast. It's an outward sign. You couldn't distinguish that because the wise and the foolish were all there invited at that time. The inward condition of these, these virgins, the truth indicates that the virgins are not alike. Five of them are wise, prudent, sensible, you know, thoughtful, and five of them were foolish. And the Greek word is moros, which is, in English, defined as moron or stupid, right? Now, applying this to the church in our present reality, in every assembly of believers, we must believe the Lord knows who belongs to him and those who do not belong to him. He knows all of that. You can't hide that from him. So Bible scholar and teacher William Arnold writes in his book, The Parables of Our Lord, there is not a more grand or a more beautiful spectacle on earth than a great assembly reverently worshiping God together. No line visible to the human eye divides into two parts the goodly company. Yet the goodly company is divided into two parts. The Lord reads our character and marks our place. The Lord knows them that are his and them that are not his in every assembly of believers and worshipers. So as we sit here, believe me, the Lord knows who are his and who are not his, right? And the idea is not to exclude anybody, 
But the idea is to reach deep into the heart by his grace and his mercy and his complete forgiveness and his ability to say, I want you to be mine. But don't reject him, right? Jesus had said, my sheep know my voice. And the shepherd knows who belongs to him. Wisdom and foolishness manifest itself in how prepared and watchful we are of Christ's return. The oil that he's talking about represents the Holy Spirit and God's incredible saving grace for us that's available to all who want it. In a crowd of people who outwardly appear to honor Jesus Christ, there will be some that are not prepared, right? They have not received salvation by grace. And the oil in this parable reminds us of the story of the wedding garment um, in Matthew twenty-two eleven, And don't turn in your Bibles, so I'll just, I'll just read out here. The story is the king found a guest that did not have wedding garments in his, at his son's wedding. And he had him thrown out because simply the man was not prepared. He had entered the feast, but he was identified and cast away because he had not prepared his heart. So there's some serious stuff going on here, right, that we need to take into our hearts and look in the mirror and take an inventory of our lives and say, Lord, if I look through the lens of the gospel, I know that you're a God full of grace and mercy, but what am I doing or not doing to have that right relationship with you, right? In 2 Timothy um, um, chapter 3, verse 5, Paul tells uh, Timothy that there are some people who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. And the foolish versions were like that. They appear to have been committed to Christ intellectually, socially, and religiously. However, they had no light or life. They had no ability to be conformed to the law of God. See, without works, then their faith was dead. James 2.17 talks about that. It showed no fruit. Is, is works always that important? Yeah, faith without works is dead, right? They had not made the effort to work, to be prepared. So the flask that they had, that should have had, with, that was filled with oil, happened to be empty. Because they hadn't done their job. They had slept on the job, right? So personally, I want to take this message really seriously to myself. And I want it to sink deep into my heart. I'm sure you do too. There are many among us that attach ourselves to church and yet may not trust the Lord. Look at Matthew 13, verses 28 to 30. Jesus is talking about the wheat and the tares, which we are not to pull out, he says, because he will come and do it, right? Uh, and further in Matthew 13, he talks about the seeds. They are planted in good soil, but later they are strangled by the weeds or the roots do not take hold in the rocky ground. These plants do not bear fruit. They're not healthy and they eventually die. Should we check our condition? Where are we in that? kind of picture, right? This parable, so, is a prophetic warning to all the churches of our day, and not just us, right? The whole body of Christ itself, universally. That despite being filled with people, many may not be saved, like the five foolish virgins. Um, they were just not prepared for his return. We could be deeply involved in church activity, now don't get me wrong, um, you could be part of a CG, DNA, you can do a lot of Bible studies, you can read your Bible with, you know, ritualistic form. Um, you know, you can do all those good, good things, right? And do acts of service. But they all make us feel good, but it is possible that we are deceiving ourselves because his word hasn't sunk into our heart to bring about a change in our lives so that we are walking in the Spirit. Because if we walk in the Spirit, we are sowing to the Spirit. And if we sow to the Spirit, we reap what is of the Spirit. And the trajectory that we will be on is simply on the narrow path that leads to Jesus. Right? And finally, let's talk about the section about the slumber in verse number 5. So as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, in the practices of those days, I don't know what the reason for the delay would have been. Uh, maybe the bride price might have been renegotiated, I suppose. No, no, we agreed on a goat, no, but now I want a camel, 
right? Or, no, no, you said you're going to give me a Chevy, but no, he doesn't want it now, he wants a Tesla, right? Whatever that is, right, the, the, that price had changed and might have been the reason for the delay. Now, even Christ's return is only known to the Father in heaven. So we don't know when he's going to show up. And all we can expect is that when he does, we will be ready for him. We will be prepared. So both these, these groups of young women, the wise and the foolish, they fell asleep. So Jesus is not uh, you know, criticizing the sleep factor at all. Sleep is a natural act uh, for our bodies because our bodies get tired and, uh, and, when, and it's not connected in any way to being wise or foolish, right? The virgins themselves were excited to be at that wedding, right? Um, they had an invitation from the bride and the bridegroom. And um, uh, this is a picture of God's grace again. I mean, which is it, the invitation that we have is intended to, to get us in to his wedding feast, right? It's given equally to those that um, are wise and those that are foolish, right? But this grace requires a response to the joyful invitation from the bridegroom, right? It would have impacted their hearts to desire that they be prepared and be ready for him. So while waiting for the return of the Lord, right, we too, we too could fall asleep. We could become complacent, right? However, you know what? Are we going to be prepared for his return? Are we going to clearly um, take our hearts and be ready, and be watchful, and, and, and be you know, eager right, for, for the return of the Lord. We don't know when that has happened. It will happen, right? But we are, the Bible prescribes us to be ready at all times, right? Moving onwards to verses number 6 to 12, where we're talking about the bridegroom now. And I'll break this down verse by verse. So verse 6 says, But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Now this is the arrival of, of the groom. Midnight is usually a very late hour for the wedding to begin. Most people are likely asleep. And midnight also has a significance in the Bible. For example, in Exodus 11:4, it says, So Moses said, this is what the Lord says about midnight. I will go throughout Egypt. And we all know what happened in that story. The firstborn of all the Egyptians, including the animals, had died, right? Creating the, the room for the deliverance of the people of Israel to get out of bondage from Egypt. Now, the bridesmaid, they knew that they were invited, like we are. We know that we are invited. Uh, and they could read the signs since they had gathered at the house of the bridegroom. Oh, sorry, at the bride. And when the herald sounded, this, sounded the cry, hey, the bridegroom is coming, he's coming, it awakened those that were sleeping. And the excitement filled the air as the party would now begin and perhaps last for several days. Now, it was time for the bridegroom and his groomsmen to collect the bride and the bridesmaids and then lead them in a procession to go home. The bridesmaids and the rest of the wedding party would light up their torches and then follow the bridegroom into his home to start the wedding, right? Unfortunately, see what happens with complacency? There were five of them that couldn't find the oil, and so they had to be left behind. And we'll talk about this further a little bit. Verse 7 says, Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. What does that mean, right? This is the awakening. So they are now awakened by the noise, and the first thing that they do is that, okay, we've got to fix our lamps, we've got to have the torches up. We can only do that when we pour oil onto these cloths that we will wrap on the wire mesh so that when we light it, right, it'll give us a bright light. If you don't have an oil, have oil and you just light up the, the cloth, it'll just smolder and die out, right? So they didn't anticipate that the bridegroom would come so late, so these, these five gals, Right? didn't have the oil. What about us? Apply it to ourselves now. We do not want to be unprepared like those foolish virgins. So are we ready to trim our lamps with a flask of oil? Pardon me. So that we can be ready for that day? Now, the Apostle Paul, and he writes really good stuff, <laughs> he challenges us to make sure that we are saved 
And in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail that test. Pretty hard, hard words to look at. The foolish virgins, they had no oil, no internal holiness. And therefore, couldn't light their torches. So what camp do we belong to? Right? Do we have our torches? Do we have the oil as a backup? We need to reflect on that and think about that deeply so that we can look at life in a way that's different. Right? Uh, verse 8, moving on. The verse 8 says, The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Now that, this is the appeal. Right? The foolish virgins, they tried to light the, their torches, of course. It was only cloth, and they smoldered and died. Right? And when they realized that they had no oil, they looked at the other five who had them and said, look, our lamps are going out. Can we have some? Right? What was the answer to that? In verse 9, it tells us, the wise answer is saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Now, this is the answer. The wise virgins didn't give any oil to the foolish ones. Why? It's not because they were selfish. The message we can understand and apply um, to our lives is this. An unbeliever cannot ask a believer for salvation, right? Salvation is not a transferable or a marketable commodity, right? Um, it's one of those things where you have to do that entirely on your own, okay? Uh, it's only given by Jesus. So when you are called to the judgment seat of God, be it by death or the second coming. We will stand alone without an advocate with us to plead our case, right? Now, even all the saints on earth or even in heaven, if they plead on your behalf, that cannot help. Because only God provides that salvation. There's that one chance when you check the heartbeat, when you have breath in your lungs, that is the time for you to say, Lord, I need you, right? So let's look at Romans 6.23 for a moment, because we, we referred to that earlier. It said, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That reiterates what I just said, is that we need salvation from Jesus. So we ask ourselves, have we truly made Jesus Lord of all in our lives? Or is he just one of the many idols that make life happen and we are complacent and we live life as though there is no end to it, right? Are we going to be taken by surprise? So Matthew 13, verses 45 to 46, remember? He talks about the merchant. He wanted that thing desperately. What does he do? He's told, he sells everything. And then he goes and buys that pearl of great price. Is that anything that has happened to us? Are we prepared to sell everything and say, Lord, I want you above everything else in my life. When I call you Lord, everything else is under your heel because you are all. You're front, center, first, as my first love. That's all I need, right? So the foolish virgins could have gotten the oil, but not at midnight. Perhaps they could have if the market was open, it wasn't probably. How about us? Are we like that too? Are we waiting for this event to take us by surprise and find that, hey, it's happening and I don't have my flask of oil and I'm in a panic. Am I going to also hear the same thing? Go, go to the marketplace and buy some, right? Now, are we going to be like Terry Dean in the movie, right? I had a plan, but I didn't think it was going to happen so soon, right? Life doesn't wait, folks. Perhaps you're, to the young people here, perhaps you're young and you feel that you're invincible, right? Uh, you have a lot of time and you've got all these career path aspirations and achievements that you want to do, right? And not realizing that it could happen in the twinkle of an eye. Your life could go, could be taken away from you, right? You won't have time at all to straighten it out. Right? Um, so let today 
If you don't know him, let today be your day of salvation. Remember, he provides that. He provides salvation. It's full. It's free. It doesn't ask you to do anything. And people might say, you know, you're you're barraging me with this guilt trip. No, I'm not. There's no sin in your life that is excluded from the grace that is extended to us. He took the sins of the entire humanity from yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he cast them as a curse on his son. Why? Because his son, when he died, had each one of us on his mind because he wanted to make the father joyful that he had redeemed all of us, right? So let's move on a little bit, uh, and we'll talk about verses 10 to 12, and I'll read... And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Pretty harsh stuff, right? This is the abandoning of these five foolish virgins. The reception happens very quickly. He comes, the, the heralds make a cry, Everybody is ready, is taken away, and they move, move ahead. And then they go to the venue, and of course the venue is then locked up, right? The five foolish virgins detoured, tried to get some oil, and then they found that, okay, we have a problem, right? Uh, because when they come, the door is shut. So they knock on the door, but nothing happens, right? Now picture the people of Noah. Uh, in Noah's day, picture those people. The ark was being made, people looking and laughing. The invitation was very clear that this is what's going to happen. The floods are going to come. Eventually they don't listen, they continue partying. Noah and his family and all the animals God had given him had entered the ark. And when the floods came and the water started to rise, it was God that actually shut that gate behind Noah, giving him that safety in the ark. And the people that were all around obviously died. It's pretty pathetic to tell you the truth. Do you see that happening today? Do you see that life around us today is very similar in different ways and patterns, right? It's pretty scary stuff that's going on around the world today, right? I don't know. I mean, I I just feel that with COVID impacting us so much and uh, so much uncertainty and the fear-mongering and all that stuff happening, you know, try the vaccine, the vaccine's not good, whatever it is, You know, it takes our eyes off Jesus. Is normal going to come back to us? Never. But is Jesus going to come back to us? Absolutely. You just don't know when. Right? So the rejection was simply the groom's refusal to take these people that were not prepared. Was he harsh in that? No, I don't think so. Because he paid the price. He died on the cross. What more can he offer you to accept the grace that he gives us? Right? This is where we are. This is where we need to make a decision. Is that, Lord, I believe in what you've done. I believe in your redemption. I want to be more and more like you. Right? So I'll move on to a, kind of a, a scary part of the scripture, which I think is really almost torments me, right? Matthew 7, verses 22 to 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. And verse 23 says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So church, do we play church? Do we put on wedding garments and pretend we're at the feast? Or in our hearts, are we really, really prepared for the time when he returns, or even for the time of death, which is unexpected? And I'll just quote from, here, uh, from Alfred Plummer here, the British theologian, uh, sorry, a British theologian who, de- who deceased in 1926. It's a bit of an old quote, but it says, the closed door which to those who were ready meant security, 
and untold bliss. To the others meant banishment and untold gloom. And that's the, that's the picture that I see, is that the people that had prepared were happy, were in the feast. The people that had not were excluded. And I know in our, in, our, in our culture of inclusivity, that would be very uh, detrimental to speak to people out in the world today, that, you know, how could he do that? You know, he's not, he's not a fair God. He's not, you know, a nice God, right? But that's academic. He is God. And I have no argument, because I didn't create the world. He did, right? And finally, we'll talk about verse number 13, which is the actual warning that he gives us. So he says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So the key word, of course, is watch. So even though we do not know the day or the hour, we need to prepare in anticipation for the return of Jesus. He was not calling for, for us to be alert in this parable or remain awake in this parable. Um, when others are asleep, as important that may be, he was calling us for preparation. He was calling us for readiness. He was asking us to be watchful. So he does not tell us to wait for him. He says to watch for him, right? So to illustrate this story, let me share a story from a Bible teacher, M.P. Green. The story is told of a fishing village in Scotland. And I've changed the names a little bit for, to make it a little bit fun. So after days at sea, the skipper of a fishing boat was bringing his craft back home. And as the boat neared the shore, the men gazed eagerly towards the dock where a group of their loved ones were waiting. The skipper, looking through his glass, identified some of the women saying, I see Matt Kirsten is there, and I see Andrew Shannon is there, and David Leah is there. And Ken was very anxious because his wife, Rena, was not. And he left the boat with a heavy heart, and then he pressed uh, his steps up the hill where he saw a light in the cottage. And as he opened the door, his wife ran to meet him, saying, I have been waiting for you. And Ken replies to Rena, saying, yes, but all the other guys, their wives were actually watching for them at the pier. Why were you not there while well, I was doing all this stuff? Right? Jesus is trying to tell us, look, watch for me. I will come. Right? It's, it's hard to keep watch, though, right? Um, the Lord is simply telling us, you know what? I'm not imposing any, any particular things to do, but I'm simply telling you, trust me, because I died for you. What more can I do for you, right? I gave you my life, right? So in our current age, when he returns, is he going to find disciples who are ready and prepared, or will he find many of us that are not? So yes, it's possible to sit in church week after week, and say, why am I not getting it? You know, why doesn't God seem real to me? If you're in that situation this morning, please don't just accept it. It doesn't have to be that way. Cry out to God, right? Cry out to him to make him known to you, right? And press on to know and love Jesus. Don't be satisfied with just having a beautiful lamp or a torch. Make sure you have the oil as well, right? So let's apply this parable to our lives today. Okay? And maybe you're pondering, what should I do? Maybe you're afraid, you're overwhelmed, you're fearful of judgment maybe. You feel that you'll be left out, right? Well, don't be. That's not the intent. There is a time for us to prepare now, to be ready and alert, right? Even if he arrives like a thief in the night, we will not be caught unawares because we will be ready, right? Perhaps you may ask, what can I do then to prepare myself for that day, right? So let's talk about that for a moment. We are ready when our relationships with God and others are what they should be. We are ready when at any moment, regardless of where we are, we are not ashamed to have the Lord meet us. Maybe we're in the privacy of our room, maybe we're hanging around with our girlfriend, and, you know, whatever, right, we are, maybe we are at the theater, whatever place you are, are you ready? Are you going to be ashamed of meeting with Jesus, right? So we are also ready when we diligently take care of our duties. We have commitments. The Lord is not saying, you know, just sit down in a room and wait for me. No, we have daily chores and commitments. 
And we've got to honor those because whatever the role or the office that we are functioning in, it could be a husband, a wife, or parent, or son, or daughter, or grandparent, whatever, an employee, right? We should strive to be good and faithful stewards of all that he has given us. We can't neglect the stuff that he has given us to keep, you know, doing, right? So today I'm inviting you to put your faith in Jesus. We know he came from heaven to earth, right? And he did so willingly, sacrificially, joyfully, right? Um, Like I said before, the entire weight of the human sin package yesterday, today, and tomorrow, was placed on him as a curse. And he died and he gave his life for that, right? So if you have come today and you're new, or maybe if you're watching this online, um, I invite you to talk to the person that brought you here, or to one of the staff, or Andrew at uh, our West Shore Expression Leader, or one of the elders, right? To know more about Jesus, come and ask us the question. If you're online, send, send an email to andrew at westvillagechurch.com, and I'm sure Andrew will get back to you, okay? Now, let's remember the message today, and I'll wrap up in a couple of minutes. Um, let's constantly ask these questions, okay? Have we checked our oil lately? Are we prepared to be ready and not to be taken by surprise? Do we hear what God is saying about those that will be unprepared? And I just want to... Um, ask the band to come back. I'm just going to lead you into communion as I wrap up here. If you don't have the emblems, there are some in the front there. Uh, you know, I invite you take to take to get some. And before I close, I just want to read a bit of a quotation that has been taken from an, an anonymous writer. And it says, the time has come for me to choose. It's Jesus Christ or heaven lose. But if what heaven loves, I hate. Then close to me is heaven's gate. So as we do what Jesus told us to do every time, to do this in remembrance of me, communion. So this cracker represents the broken body of our Savior. When it goes into your mouth and it breaks up, just think, that broken body was beaten, was abused, was hurt, was scourged, was shredded. And that body was done, uh, broken because of us and our sin. So this is what he did with his body for us. So let's eat. And this cup of juice that we have in my hand, this is a reminder of the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins. It washed away our sins. It cleansed us. It gave us that ability to be in the presence of our Father. Because when we look at Jesus, when we look at life today, we know the righteousness that we wear is not ours. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And He paid the price with his blood. And there's power in the blood of the Lamb of God. So whether it's washing away our sin, healing, restoration, this sacrifice on the cross was meant for us. And we need to do this more in remembrance of him wherever we are. So drink up this cup. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And I thank you so much, Lord, because we are reminded, Lord, in the scriptures, through the parable of the ten virgins, to check our oil, to check if you're ready, to remind ourselves of the fate of the unprepared. And that's not meant to, f- to frighten us or scare us, but more, Lord, to remind us of the grace and the mercy that our Lord Jesus has given us. And Lord, help us to fill our hearts with oil, that the Spirit of God will lead us, Lord, into the narrow path that we need that heads towards you. So that, Lord, as we live on this earth, Lord God, and we are filled with the Spirit, that we will put every idol beneath your feet and that we will live for you. So that doing all that we have to do, Lord Jesus, that we will be prepared, O God, to be ready for that moment when you come to take us home. 
that we won't be scrambling for the oil or anything like that, but we will be willing, Lord Jesus, partners in that walk to enter into the kingdom, to enter into the marriage feast of the Lamb, and to celebrate what you've done for us. We pray all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.